Preventing harassment in the federal workplace starts with agency leadership. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is emphasizing that idea, along with a host of other recommendations for agencies to strengthen their anti-harassment policies. The new EEOC guidance updates a study from several years ago, this time taking into account changes from the pandemic. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from the commission's attorney advisor, Marquis Willoughby. It serves as an extension or complement to the EOC's 2016 Select Task Force on the Study of Harassment in the Workplace, which is a bipartisan report from the Commission's co-chairs. In 2017, the EOC issued a technical assistance document entitled Promising Practices for Preventing Harassment. That contains practices within core principles found in the Select Task Force report to assist all employers in preventing and addressing harassment. And so this new technical assistance document builds on that 2017 technical assistance document by focusing on promising practices for preventing and addressing harassment, specifically in the federal civilian workforce. It also contains practices that are required by EEO uh, Management Directive 715 or MD 715, uh, which is very specific to federal employees, whereas the previous document was a general document for employers. So we did not have the specific requirements tailored to the federal uh, civilian workforce. It also contains, in addition to those requirements from MD 715, it contains a non-exhaustive list of additional promising practices that we're recommending uh, by the EOC. Although federal agencies aren't required to adopt the additional recommended practices, they're strongly urged to consider adoption of those practices to improve their anti-harassment programs, uh, to prevent workplace harassment, and generally to have more effective compliance with the laws. What are some of the top recommendations that you have for agencies? It's hard to pick the top, but the favorites like kids, but I think there's some here that particularly stand out. The promising practice that agencies should ensure that they have an anti-harassment program that's separate and distinct from its EEO program with neutral staff who are responsible for promptly, thorough, and impartially investigating harassment allegations. And ultimately, if there's a finding of harassment, the agency must ensure they take immediate and appropriate corrective action. That's really pivotal. That's why we have anti-harassment programs, is to promptly investigate the harassment in a thorough and impartial way, but also if harassment is found to occur, to take the appropriate immediate corrective action to make sure it does not recur. Another uh, practice that we'd like to highlight is that we recommend that agency heads issue and post an annual anti-harassment policy statement signed by the agency head, really showing that leadership is on board with anti-harassment e efforts. And it should explain the type of conduct that's prohibited, how to report that harass harassment, and any consequences and accountability for engaging in harassment or retaliation. Another practice is uh, addressing things such as bullying, intimidation, and stalking, uh, what it is, and the fact that it will not be tolerated by the agency. Because of the growth in remote and teleworking in the federal sector, we know that uh, agencies should inform supervisors and managers about how to manage or how to monitor, rather, online harassment 
including harassment in, on a virtual platform. Another thing, we recommend that agencies adopt electronic tracking systems to analyze where the problem areas are and to also evaluate whether or not their anti-harassment programs are effective in preventing and addressing harassment. And then finally, another practice is that we advise agencies to consider trauma-informed training for all personnel who may receive or respond to allegations of harassment or or harassing conduct. Now, this is especially important for investigators or for anyone who is receiving these reports of harassment to be culturally competent to handle people who may have experienced trauma. I want to dive in on a couple different areas that you just touched on. So the first one being, you said that agency heads should be essentially responsible for posting an anti-harassment document or policy. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of leadership in implementing these policies and why it's important to kind of set that standard? Leadership plays a pivotal role in preventing and correcting harassment. EEOC's Management Directive 715 makes it clear that a model EEO program hinges on demonstrated commitment from agency leadership, which involves having the agency head clearly communicating to employees, including supervisors and managers, about the agency's commitment to preventing and correcting workplace harassment. To do this, Leaders must ensure the agency has an anti-harassment program that's separate and distinct from the EEO program, and that the program has neutral staff outside of the entity involved in the allegations who are dedicated and trained to promptly, thoroughly, and impartially investigate allegations harassment, and ultimately, if there's a finding of harassment, ensure that type of immediate and appropriate corrective action that will ensure the harassment does not recur. Leaders must also ensure that the agency has sufficient funding for the anti-harassment programs, including, you know, personnel, any other type of resources necessary to prevent harassment and retaliation. And also leaders have to ensure that investigations of harassment begin promptly, which is defined by MD-715 as within 10 calendar days, at least. Sometimes it has to begin well before 10 days, but at the very least, it has to begin within 10 calendar days of receipt of harassment allegations. Another thing that you touched on that I found pretty interesting was you talked about the role of online harassment. Obviously, agencies have seen a major increase in telework and remote work. Have you seen that have an effect on the way that harassment exists in the federal workspace? And did that shape at all the way that you wrote or created this guidance? Remote work and telework can change the platform of harassment. And our policies and our programs should be specific about the different ways that harassment can manifest in a particular workplace or particular agency. Employees and supervisors can be subjected to harassment through online or virtual platforms while working, just as they can be if they're actually in the physical office. And so in recognition that remote work and telework have become such a huge, huge component of the federal workplace, this document recommends that anti-harassment policies and training incorporate discussions about how the agency's anti-harassment policy may be violated through work-related conduct that occurs on virtual or online platforms, including on social media. Additionally, this document notes agencies should 
clearly explained that the use of agency issued devices such as laptops or cell phones to engage in online harassment and abuse will not be tolerated. Uh, also, you can you know, have such harassment through email, of course, through text messaging, um, any other you know, electronic device. We also recommended that training address any changes to the reporting or investigation process as a result of increased remote or virtual work. And if you are an agency who looks at this guidance, puts some of the practices into place if you haven't already, are there ways to measure change over time and how effective the policies are? MD-715 contains several requirements for agency anti-harassment programs, including a requirement for anti-harassment policies that comply with EEOC standards. We have an MD-17 about uh, the requirement about beginning investigations in a prompt manner, which is within 10 calendar days of, of receiving the report. We have the requirement that an anti-harassment program must be separate and distinct from the EEO process or program. That's very important. There's a requirement that agencies have policies that are designed to address harassment before it become severe or pervasive, or it escalates to the level of unlawful harassment. That is something that we emphasize. That's what, you know, these practices are, are largely designed to prevent unwelcome conduct from escalating to becoming severe or pervasive. And also there's within MD-715 a requirement that agencies establish a firewall between their anti-harassment coordinator and program, and the EEO director. We recognize there may be a conflict of interest between these two programs, so they should be separate, and there should be a firewall to make sure there's not a conflict of interest. Now, agencies have to report on these measures to the EEOC on an annual basis. There's more of this to the MD-17 than anti-harassment uh, programs, but they are an integral part of what they have to report on each year. And failure to meet these requirements are considered deficiencies in EEO programs that must be corrected. And we are here at the EEOC to partner with the agency to show meaningful progress if they are deficient in their anti-harassment programs. And agencies just generally should continuously assess their anti-harassment programs to ensure that they are effective at preventing and correcting harassment. There should be periodic evaluation of trends and harassment complaints, which requires a tracking system, taking in data about your an agency's response to harassment so that you can identify strategies to prevent and correct any harassment that may be occurring in the workplace and also just generally to improve your anti-harassment programs and policies. For me, one question that comes up here is agency resources, and that's something that you mentioned early on, to make sure that an agency has the resources set aside to put towards this. Do you see, based on the size or resources that an agency has, you know, a really big department maybe has more resources to contribute to this, do you see smaller agencies struggling to put all of this into effect more than large ones? There can be more of a struggle in some smaller agencies, but I think even larger agencies can, can struggle if they don't make correcting harassment a priority. And leadership has to catch that vision and be committed to ensuring that harassment does not occur through its anti-harassment programs, policies, and training. And so resources are important 
towards the that main goal of preventing and correcting harassment, there has to be ongoing assessment of what the program, the anti-harassment program needs are for accomplishing this this pivotal goal. You know, it can depend from agency to agency. Size can be a factor, but I don't see that as being a leading factor. There is a lot on paper here showing that leadership should post things, should measure certain areas about how effective the policy is. Is there anything that is maybe less concrete in this guidance here? What factors in workplace culture might contribute to better anti-harassment policies? In the 2016 Select Task Force on the Study of Harassment in the Workplace, it contains sort of an assessment of risk factors for harassment in a particular workplace. And I think agencies should assess their risk factors and see how to mitigate those risk risk factors and how maybe their anti-harassment program can strategize to prevent harassment with awareness of those risk factors. So I think that's a good tool for doing that. Can you describe a couple of what those risk factors would be? Risk factors include things such as a lack of diversity in the workforce or homogenous workforce, workplaces where some employees do not conform to workplace norms. Sometimes single-sex dominated workplace cultures can have that risk factor. If there are cultural and language differences in the workplaces, uh, the arrival of new employees with different cultures and nationalities may uh, trigger harassment in those situations, power disparities or large or significant power disparities between employees. Sometimes uh, workforces, and we have these in the federal sector, that rely on customer service or clients' uh, satisfaction and interaction, that can expose federal employees to the possibility of harassment. In isolated workplaces, uh, physically isolated workplaces, we have found can be ripe for harassment in certain situations. And if you're a federal leader that has more of those risk factors, or maybe some of those risk areas are higher, are there specific strategies or ways that they should be trying to correct that beyond the more general recommendations? The EOC is here to partner with agencies to address any deficiencies or issues that may exist within their uh, agencies with regard to anti-harassment efforts. Uh, But you can also consult social science experts on this topic. There's many resources out there in the workplace context regarding anti-harassment efforts, and EEOC hopefully is, is on speed dial for many of these agencies. EEOC has this new guidance. What are the next steps for the commission? How are you continuing to work on this topic? We're continually evaluating uh, agencies' anti-harassment programs, and we provide feedback. We provide technical assistance on an ongoing basis. Agencies reach out to us to help us draft their anti-harassment policies, and ultimately, agencies need to get those policies approved by us. We are continually reviewing anti-harassment programs in all federal civilian uh, agencies, and we're partnering with agencies uh, with innovative ideas. We're, you know, sometimes a sounding board for agencies' ideas. We can give them feedback on any innovations that they may have in the anti-harassment 
field, but we also provide training and outreach on the topic of harassment, which is really, really important. Training is one of the areas that we address in this document, and we are continually uh, dialoguing and teaching the federal sector about anti-harassment efforts and the law is evolving, so there is a need to keep abreast of any developments as well as trends in this area. Marquis Willoughby, attorney advisor at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. You can find Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. 
it's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. 
At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.